Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles, you should find it on page 992. 1 Timothy chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me sort of remind you uh, where we are. We've um, in this in this process for particularization. Uh, again, that's fancy Presbyterian speak for becoming a grown-up church and having your own elders. Uh, but in, as we're in that process, we're uh, spending several weeks in a series on uh, the offices of elder and deacon. Uh, we looked first at Christ as the, the model elder, the perfect elder, the true elder, the true shepherd. Uh, last week we looked at Acts 20 and the, the duties, the functions of an elder. Uh, this morning uh, we will see First uh, Timothy chapter 3. What an elder is. First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. Let me ask that you stand as we as we read God's word together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and that's the same office as elder, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Now we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would do that which only you can do. Enlighten our minds to an understanding of your word. Shine the light on Christ who has given His bride, the church, leaders. We pray that You would even use this Word to conform all of us into His image. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. In uh, December of 1912, the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition left England. The plan was to head to Argentina, uh, leave South Georgia Island, and head to Antarctica and actually cross on land uh, from west to east this most horrific continent, actually passing through the South Pole, the ship, the name of the boat was called the Endurance. Uh, the captain of the crew was Ernest Shackleton. They never accomplished their goal. In fact, it was not long after getting to Antarctica at all that they had to uh, leave the ship and abandon uh, the mission, uh, this great scientific journey, uh, abandon all hopes of of accomplishing their mission, and it became merely a survival uh, mode at that point. 
Uh, Alfred Lansing, who wrote the book Endurance, uh, says this, The order to abandon ship, while it signaled the beginning of the greatest of all Antarctic adventures, also sealed the fate of one of the most ambitious of all Antarctic expeditions. The point is, they, they never accomplished what they set out to accomplish. And yet, through it all, uh, Ernest Shackleton remained an amazing leader. Here they are in sub-freezing temperatures for six months, dark, freezing cold, and then six months of, of light and right around freezing, and so walking through cold and slush and going without food, and uh, having no boat, eventually having to, to walk and travel by, by boat, by foot, by ice flow. They just got on ice and let it take them where it would take them. And yet through it all, Ernest Shackleton remained an amazing leader. At the end of 522 days, they made it back to South Georgia. Every single one of them survived. He lost no men on this journey. His, his gifts as a leader, he, he, he took his watch just like everyone else. He took the same meager rations just like everyone else. He never asked anyone else to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. He led and he rewarded and he rebuked all when he needed to. At the end of it all, Shackleton earned this tribute. For scientific leadership, give me Scott. For swift and efficient travel, Amundsen. But when you're in a hopeless situation, when there seems no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. He's the man you want in the most dire of circumstances. Why does that story matter? Here's why that story matters. If you had met Ernest Shackleton at a party in London, you would never have gotten in your car at the end of the night and driving home, discussing the party with your wife. You would never would have said, you know that Shackleton guy? I, I want him whenever I'm in dire circumstances. He, he couldn't interact with people. He had no social skills. He couldn't interact with people at all. He would interview potential scientists and sailors for this expedition and have conversations about Anything and everything that had nothing to do with science or sailing. He was married, but you really have no sense of a relationship with his wife. He cared more for the sea and for science than he did for his wife. There was nothing about him that you would have said, now there's the guy to lead your failed expedition across Antarctica. How often do we use the wrong measuring stick in choosing leaders? How often do we take a measuring stick out and say, now let me see if this guy fits the bill, and only to realize we have the wrong measuring stick. We're using the wrong standard. We're using the, the, the wrong instrument to, to figure out if this is the right guy or not to lead in the church or a company or an expedition across Antarctica. 1 Timothy 3 gives us that measuring stick for seeking out elders and eventually deacons in this passage, but that's another sermon. 
for seeking out elders in Christ's church. Notice the first, before you even get into the qualifications, notice that you get one sentence in. You get into the first verse and already your natural assumptions are flipped on their head. I don't know about you, but I assume, I, if, if it weren't for this verse, I would assume somebody desiring the office of elder would automatically disqualify him for the office. Well, he, that, that must be sinful pride. He must, he must want some sort of honor. He must be expecting some sort of recognition. He wants everyone in the congregation to call him elder. Paul didn't say that here. In fact, he says quite the opposite. If someone does desire the office of elder, not only does that not disqualify him, but it it may very well qualify him for the office. He desires a a noble task. He desires a a noble thing. Notice the implication here is that this man isn't seeking the honor or recognition that comes with an office. He desires a task, the function of an elder. Elders primarily go lower. They don't go higher. They don't lord over. They go lower. They go below. They serve and care for the congregation from below. They will be bearing the burdens of the children of God and and must do so with honor and dignity. To desire that is is to desire a noble task. It's to humble yourself, to care for the flock. Paul says if he desires the office of, of an overseer, yes, he, he desires a noble, weighty thing. It's a, it's a noble, weighty task, but that desire does not disqualify him for the office in any way, shape, or form. And it's only then that he gets into the, the qualifications of the office of elder. And, and again, as you read these qualifications, First Timothy, I mean, 1 Samuel 16 rolls through your head. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. They're all heart issues. They're all qualifications of, of moral character. In fact, you'd have a, a pretty difficult time finding anything in this passage. There's one and a half kind of's. Uh, that point to what an elder does. They all have something to do with what an elder is. The overwhelming majority are are moral characteristics, moral requirements. The focus of Scripture over and over again is on who you are, not on what you do. First, they they fall really under three headings, uh, these qualifications. First, an elder is sincere in his personal life. Notice verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach. All the rest, quite honestly, fit under that heading. Just just take above reproach as a heading and let all the others fit under that heading, under that category. He's one against whom there's no serious, scandalous charge of sin. Uh, One against whom that charge couldn't stick. He's, he's above reproach in every, every area of his life. His, his, what he says about himself, his character and his actions match. His claims of, of being a believer in Christ uh, fit his lifestyle. Above reproach, by the way, never means sinless. 
if you're looking for sinless men to be elders, we'll never have elders. Paul himself tells Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul says, not only am I, yes, okay, I'm a, I'm, I'm a lately called apostle. Oh, but by the way, I'm also at the other end of the spectrum, the greatest sinner I know. He's not saying you have to be sinless. He's not saying you have to be above reproach in the sense that you, you never sin. But it's, there is a, a, an above reproach way of handling sin in your life. Of confession and repentance. An elder is to be above reproach. He's also sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. He's not mastered by his emotions, but he, he has mastery over them. He, he keeps them in check by God's grace. He has them under control. He's hospitable. Verse 2. His home should be a warm, welcoming, loving place. A place for ministry. A place for care for others. You know, it would be easy to read hospitable and say, well, my home is too small. My home is, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have a sufficient space for that. There's, there's no requirement for a large warm house here. The requirement is that you have a large warm heart. One who's hospitable and cares for the needs of others and welcomes uh, strangers and brothers and sisters into fellowship in their home. He's not a, not a drunkard, not a lover of money. The, the things of this world do not consume him. He's not given over to being controlled by wine and, and money. He's not consumed with, with getting more and more money and, and buying the next drink, if you will. He's not violent, he's not quarrelsome, but he's gentle. I've known people who would claim to they, a right to be elder simply because they could argue you into the ground. They would assume that, well, because I can win an argument, I get to be an elder. I should be an elder here because, because I, can, I can win an argument. An elder cares more about winning people than arguments. That's the, the picture here, a, a love for others. He's not violent or quarrelsome. Our Savior, even in His most adversarial conversations, even in His most adversarial interactions with the Pharisees, He's never violent, never quarrelsome. He's gentle. Do you remember? Besides, it's, it's, it's the peacemakers, Jesus tells us, who will be called the sons of God. That's, that's the promise of, of the Sermon on the Mount. You read through these qualifications, and, and many of you, I assume, will have Bill Clinton's presidency running through your head. The whole debate of character doesn't matter. The whole issue of private life is separate from public life, and we should keep them separate and what happens in private life has no bearing on public life and therefore it shouldn't 
You shouldn't care about that. You should only care about this public persona. But, but notice over and over again, what Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, is who you are in private is who you are. Who you are when no one's looking is exactly who you are. Character matters. In fact, it doesn't just matter in the church. We find in verse 7 this, this odd observation. I say odd because it may not fit our normal thinking. We, we might sort of assume, well, who cares what his co-workers think? Who cares what, what his boss thinks? Who cares what his employees think? Because that's not the church. That's the business. And we're going to keep those two worlds separate. We, we might approach the, the passage with that mindset, but notice verse 7. He has to be well thought of by outsiders. Those outside the church, their thoughts, their opinions matter. I am aware of, I've never been in one, but I am aware of one church that has actually created some sort of questionnaire or letter or something, I'm not even certain, that they send to a coworker, boss, employer, employee. I'm not entirely certain even how that works. I'm aware of one church that actually pursues verse 7. What is... What do his coworkers think? What do the people outside of the church think? What do the employee, his employees or his employer think of, of his character and his, and his personality and his, his morality in the workplace? An elder also, verse 6, is not a recent convert. The Greek word there is neophyte. It's literally the word neophyte. Newly planted. One who has been newly planted. You, you know when you, when you plant a tree in your yard, it's got that big old root ball. It's not well grounded. It's not stable. And so you stake it off. You drive three stakes in the ground and wrap wire around it. And you use a section of hose because the wire would damage the trunk. And, and stabilize it and keep it there until the roots have a chance to grow out and establish themselves and the roots can hold the tree in place. You don't want a, a new convert, a, a newly planted tree, if you will. He's not yet stable. You want those roots to grow deep. You want that, that evidence of, 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 of walking with Christ through uh, years of being examined. You don't lay, his, lay hands on him too quickly. You don't ordain him to the office of elder just because he's, he's smart and, and runs his business well. And oh, now he's gotten converted. Now he's become a Christian. So let's make him an elder in the church. Now you want a track record. You don't want someone newly planted. There's a warning there. He, he may become puffed up. Pride will, may seep into his life. And he will therefore fall into condemnation of the devil, taking, by the way, the church with him. So there's a a warning, a guard there. For the sake of clarification, most of you, most of you have been between the ages of 9 and 15 before. 
And at some point between the ages of 9 and 15, your younger sibling uh, said something presumably disrespectful to you. And you responded with, respect your elders. We recognize the word elder tends to mean someone older. uh, Someone older than you are. And that would be true even in Greek as well. But notice there's no age requirement in this passage. There's a time lapse requirement, but there's no age requirement. Paul says you you need time to watch the sanctification process play out in the life of a recent convert. We've known too many people who seemed to be converted and then the things of this world The weeds grew up around him. There was no depth of soil for the roots to grow deep and they were choked out to steal Jesus' own parable. An elder must be sincere in his personal life. An elder is also stable in his family life. Notice verse 2. An elder is to be the, the husband of one wife. Literally, of one woman, a man. A one-woman man, the Bible says. He's wholeheartedly committed to one woman and to one woman only. Whether or not he's married, the requirement is not that he be married. Single people, let me, let me encourage you. We have teenagers here. Let me, let me take a tangent and encourage you a little bit in this. You can be a one-woman man even when you're not married. That wife is out there somewhere. And regardless of whether or not you know her, you are committed to her. That's the picture here. He's literally of one woman, a man. He's he's committed to sexual purity is the picture here in verse 2. The husband of one wife. But he's also, he should manage his own household well, verses 4 and 5. He has submissive, obedient children. There's a, a book uh, written by Benjamin Morgan Palmer. It was a southern Presbyterian minister in the 1800s, South Carolina and New Orleans. He has a book on, on the family. And in it, he calls, following an old Scottish tradition, uh, calling the family uh, a little church. Uh, there's this, this image in the church in days gone by of families as they sit together in chairs, but in pews, um, and, and that's sort of the, the family pew, the, the little church that came from your home and is now joining with the larger church. Notice there's this requirement here, this qualification that an elder must must manage the local church under his roof before he can care for the the local church in his community. The question you can ask of wives and of kids, hey, your dad's, your husband has been nominated as an elder. If they laugh, then you might need to rethink this nomination. If they say, well, of course, 
then there's the encouragement from wife and from children, from spouse and children. There's a a word change in verse 5, though, that fascinates me. The elder seems to have slightly different function at home and at church. Yes, as, as, as the covenant head of a home, uh, the husband, the father, is intended to be the prophet, priest, and king, the representative of Christ there. And as such, he is also shepherd there in the home and in the church. But notice the word change in verse 5. He's, he manages his household well, verse 4. Verse 5, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he... Now the word is care for the church. It's a different Greek word. He's gone from managing his home to caring for the church, for, to shepherding the church. That is, in many ways, the, the, the primary function and responsibility of an elder is as spiritual caregiver of the flock. He must manage his own household well. Would his wife, would his children encourage the nomination for elder? Or would they, would they say, well, wait, you're a completely different person at church than you are at home. You, that doesn't make any sense at all. How would they respond to hearing that you've been nominated for to be an elder? An elder is sincere in his personal life. He's stable in his family life. Lastly, he is sound in his doctrinal life. Notice the end of verse 2. Here's the one requirement that touches on function, perhaps more so than, than character. He's able to teach. Elders are expected to be able to teach God's Word and the truth of Scripture to God's people. It doesn't have to be public. It's going to happen, Acts 20, publicly and privately, publicly and from house to house and over coffee at Starbucks or whatever. It doesn't require seminary training. It doesn't require any knowledge of, of Greek or Hebrew. You don't have to go learn in languages. You can't say, oh, that's too hard. It's, it's not a, a seminary degree. It's not a language degree. It's do they, do they know and understand God's Word? Is their life steeped in Scripture? Does Psalm 1 sort of give you a picture of them even in your own mind? Can they understand and explain and apply God's Word to your life? When you have issues, when you have struggles, when marriage difficulty, when kids are struggling and you're having problems in your home, when you are struggling at work with a, perhaps even a fellow believer and you're wrestling with how can we work together or how can we separate or what's the best way to go? Can you, can you go to your elders and find men who will search God's Word with you, who will explain God's Word to you, who will apply God's Word to 
to your needs. We're a PCA church. Let's, let's recognize that we're a, a PCA church in the first PCA church in Limestone County. That means our denomination has a very publicly, clearly stated doctrinal uh, statement, and that is the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. Do they know that? Do they understand that? Do they agree with that? Is that their confession as well? Are they sound in their doctrinal life? Can they teach sound doctrine? Can they explain Scripture in a variety of settings, in a variety of ways, to a variety of people? Will they gently and carefully and lovingly open up God's Word with you and point you to God's Word for guidance and direction as you deal with life? An elder is sincere in his personal life. He's stable in his family life and sound in his doctrinal life. Let me make four applications from this passage to particular to Grace Covenant Church and to us here in Athens, Alabama. Uh, the first is if you aspire to the office of elder, you, as- you, you desire a noble task. These traits, these characteristics ought to be evidence in your life. You should see evidence of, of these things growing in your own Life. God's laid out for us the qualifications for the office of elder. And you should see these growing in your own life. Your wife and children should see, should see these things growing in your own life. Second, maybe you're here this morning thinking, I'm, I'm never going to be an elder. I have no desire to be an elder. I don't understand enough. I don't know enough. I'm not these things. For that matter, I'm a woman or I'm too young or I'm a child or whatever. You will be. If you're a member of Grace Covenant Church, you'll be voting on elders here when that day comes. Here's your measuring stick. Here's your standard. Not, hey, he's got a cool car. Not, hey, he runs a really cool business. Not, hey, he's got real good business savvy sense. It's these qualifications. This is your measuring stick. We don't bring the world's standards into the church and use their measuring stick here. You will one day have the privilege and the responsibility of evaluating men for the office of elder. This is your evaluation grid, if you will. Third, let me make this observation. Sanctification is real. Here's why I say that. None of these will be found in the natural man. Apart from God's grace, we don't want these things. If it's not for God's grace, I want money more than I care about anything else. If it's not for God's grace, I'll be lack self-control. I'll be disrespectful. I'll, um, you know, whatever. It, that's, this is all by God's grace. These things don't happen for the natural man. These happen as a result of God's grace. In other words, if you walk out of here this morning saying, I see these things growing in my life, your next response is not, let me hurt my elbow while I pat myself on my back. 
Your response is to fall on your face before God and give praise and honor and glory to Him. Because this is all of God's grace. Final, one final application application is this. I hope that as we read that passage, a familiar passage was rolling around in your brain. Maybe some of you were thinking, hang on, this sounds familiar. I don't know where to find it. I'm not sure where it is in the Bible, but some of these words sound familiar. They're echoing something I've heard before. Maybe you immediately said, hey, this is just the fruit of the Spirit. This is just Galatians 5. And that's exactly what you find here. In other words, those of us who aren't elders are not absolved from these either. We should see these growing in everyone. Any believer in Christ, anyone united to Christ by grace, through faith, should see evidence of these things growing and maturing in our own lives. This is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, played out in the life of a particular office in the church. This passage becomes a tool not just for evaluating men who might be elders, but for examining our own lives as well. For examining our own growth in grace as well. May God, by His grace and mercy, through the work of His Spirit and His Word, make us people marked by this. Let's pray together. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have given Your church, Your bride, leaders, elders, and deacons. You've called men to office to give guidance and direction and leadership to the church. We pray, Father, that You would raise up men to be elders here at Grace Covenant. And that you would raise up men and women and boys and girls who fit these kind of characteristics, who are marked by these qualifications, and then send them out into the world to live for Christ, to bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would make us people who long to grow in grace, who love to grow in grace, and who are by Your grace and mercy, growing in the knowledge and righteousness of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.